Next up is Redford's success with Sundance. I really want to highlight certain key points in the timeline of Sundance's history because I think what Redford has done with the Sundance Film Festival and with the Sundance Institute is incredibly influential and incredibly inspiring. In 1961, Redford bought two acres of land and made a cabin near Provo Canyon and Mount Timbogos because he was inspired by the wilderness of the land. By 1969, Redford bought another 5,000 acres of land around the same time and named the land Sundance after his role in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. That same year, he opened Sundance Mountain Resort and picked the land as a wilderness preserve. The founding of Sundance Institute happened in 1980. Redford gathered a group of colleagues and friends at Sundance, Utah to see if they could create a space that would be beneficial to future filmmakers. They cultivated and nurtured a space that analyzed the importance of craft, story, and the human being in the artistic and business aspects of making movies. The very first lab at Sundance happened in 1981. Fifteen independent filmmakers came together to create original projects with the help of advisors Sidney Pollack and Waldo Salt, who were both writers and directors. The labs helped the artists by giving them resources and a space that supported the creative process, and also encouraged filmmakers to tell an original story with their own voice. In 1983, the film El Norte, which was directed by Gregory Nava, was the first lab supported film to be produced at Sundance. The film is about two undocumented immigrants that travel from Guatemala to the United States. Writers Gregory Nava and Anna Thomas were nominated at the Oscars for Best Screenplay. By 1984, the Sundance Playwrights Laboratory was created. And by 1985, the first film festival was in full gear. The Sundance Institute takes the position of creative and administrative control of the 1985 U.S. Film Festival, later named the Sundance Film Festival. This festival ran for 10 days and featured work from new American independent stories, documentary films, and international films. From 1986 to 1987, the Institute created the Creative Exchange in Latin America and Japan program. This exchange program was created by the Sundance Institute, and they also created a Sundance Film Festival in Tokyo to help build ties with international artists, which also created more opportunities for storytellers abroad. By 1987, they realized that they had a gap in different aspects of the artistic field within the filmmaking process, and ended up creating labs for composers, choreographers, and created an intense lab for script development. In 1989, the film Sex, Lies, and Videotapes won the Dramatic Artists Award at the Sundance Film Festival. This movie was written and directed by Steven Soderbergh and became the most successful independent film released up until now. This movie was also cemented at Sundance as the main premiere forum for an indie film. By 1991, we see a lot of smaller films getting more recognition. Some of these films are Daughters of the Dust, Paris is Burning, Slacker, In the Soup, El Marachi, Clerks, Hoop Dreams, Mi Vida, Loca, and Reality Bites. All of these films are now incredibly acclaimed today, 
and it's just really cool to be able to see where these smaller films were able to get their start and how big they've become in more of the mainstream worlds of filmmaking. By 1993 and 1994, the Institute created the Spanish language labs and began to show their support of Native American filmmakers. In 1995, the film Smoke Signals, which was written by Sherman Alexie and directed by Chris Irie, became the first film written and directed by Native Americans to be shown at Sundance. By 1997, they worked to preserve indie film history and created the Sundance Collection at UCLA. Around this time, the film Boys Don't Cry, which was written and directed by Kimberly Pierce, made its development at the Director's Lab. This film eventually gave Hilary Swank an Oscar for Best Actress at the 2000 Oscars. From the year 2000 up until now, the Sundance has done a magnificent job of moving with the times. They were able to transition to digital film, and they've been creating a lot more opportunities for theatrical artists and created the first lab dedicated to the development of musical and ensemble theater. They also created a lot of opportunities for global theater and created theater labs all over the world. They also put in place more opportunities for documentaries, such as the Documentary Fund Program, and created the World Cinema Competition, which gave a lot of great promotion of international filmmakers. Overall, Sundance has done a really great job of establishing itself as a great access for more digital content and has begun to create a space within inclusion and storytelling as well. What I love and appreciate about Sundance is that it's really given different artists a chance to create bodies of work that they are passionate about from their own experiences. And I think being able to create a space where it's healthy for these artists to push boundaries and learn and grow more throughout being able to tell these stories has just really helped Sundance become as influential as it is today. The first movie that we are going to talk about today is Ordinary People. This movie was written by Alvin Sargent and was based on the novel by Judith Guest and was directed by Robert Redford. This movie is about the accidental death of the older son of an affluent family that deeply strains the relationship among the bitter mother Beth, who is played by Mary Tyler Moore, the good-natured father Calvin, who is played by Donald Sutherland, and the guilt-ridden younger son Conrad, who is played by Timothy Hutton. With the help of his psychiatrist, Dr. Berger, played by Judd Hirsch, Conrad learns how to cope with his grief. The themes of this movie are grief, loss, and mental health struggles. According to the article Redford's Ordinary People, written by Vincent Canby for the New York Times, the article states, The very real achievement of Robert Redford, who makes his directorial debut with Ordinary People, and of Alvin Sargent, who meticulously adapted Miss Guest's novel for the screen, is that the Jarrett's become important people without losing their ordinariness, without being patronized or satirized. Not since Robert Benton's Kramer vs. Kramer has there been a movie that so effectively catches the look, sound, and temper of a particular kind of American existence. This quote leads us to our first theme of grief. Conrad's family each represents the different stages of the grieving process. His mother Beth is the one that holds herself together to a certain standard that everything needs to be quote-unquote neat and organized. One little hint of any sense of disorganization or chaos lets her social circle in to see what's underneath 
And Beth is the type of person that is very uncomfortable with that. She doesn't really like anybody coming too close. So she's closing herself off. And she's able to keep herself busy in order to cover up the pain. Conrad's dad, Calvin, is a lot more empathetic to Conrad. He really is the one that tries to step in and help as much as he can. And he is the one that makes more of an active effort to try and be there for his son than Beth does. He can also be seen as a passive observer to Beth. He's the one that wants to talk about the death of his older son, Buck, and Beth doesn't want to talk about her son at all. The dynamic between Beth and Calvin in particular is one that definitely sets a lot of the tone for the movie. While this film is mainly about Conrad and his journey through his particular grieving process, I think the dynamic between Calvin and Beth really drives how Conrad is able to react to certain situations and how he is able to hold certain feelings in because he has two parents that aren't on the same page and not being on the same page and not being able to be as self-expressive as you want to be has given Conrad this motive that he needs to be able to suppress those feelings as well. This film also does a really great job of representing the normal, everyday aspect of an affluent family. This film reflects a lot of normalcy as far as the dad goes to work, the son goes to school, the mom goes to work. And they're just, they really are normal people. They really are people that are just going through their ordinary everyday lives, but they are also hit with this overwhelming amount of grief and this overwhelming amount of loss. And it shows a certain level of how the human experience is real and how that human experience is raw. And it doesn't matter who you are or where you come from. A lot of these human experiences that we go through, they can be universal in a lot of ways. They can just hit people differently. And I think that that is a huge part of what makes this film as amazing as it is. The article continues to state, In several ways, Mr. Redford's film is far more effective than the novel. It's difficult to write about people who cannot talk to each other because writing is itself a kind of talking. Mr. Redford's film demonstrates this lack of communication, the inability to express affection, and scenes of sometimes overwhelming pathos. This quote beautifully leads us into the theme of loss. Conrad and his parents do an effective job of creating a space of reservation. They are really good at hiding their emotions until they erupt at unexpected times, and then they have to deal with those consequences of what it means to have emotions that are suppressed for so long and not being able to know how to navigate that. This lack of navigation causes a lot of debilitation within their relationships with each other and their relationships with their social circles. And we see how that ability to suppress those kinds of emotions can have a really deep effect on the people around us. Calvin and Conrad in particular are caught in the middle of how they both navigate their losses in different ways. Beth blames Conrad for Bucky's death because Conrad was there with him when he died, 
and Calvin has to navigate watching that relationship between his wife and his younger son falter and suffer in a lot of ways and Calvin wants to be the one to rush in and fix everything but he doesn't know how and Conrad is also caught in the middle of the tension between his parents because Beth is always undermining Calvin's ability to quote-unquote parent Conrad and they both want to be able to keep that normalcy of their lives intact. In a lot of ways, the dynamics between Calvin, Conrad, and Beth are all filled with so much tension and so much angst, and they're all caught in the middle of each other's grief and each other's suppression when it comes to their emotions, and it's very interesting watching those kinds of dynamics play out. Robert Redford states in an interview that he did at the Santa Barbara International Film Festival, I wanted to tell the story of what I considered the gray area, where things are more complicated, where feelings are complicated, things of that sort. One of the things I had experienced in my life was the difference between those who had something and those who didn't. I came across a lot of people that were focused on the idea of looking right, but they were not willing to look into feelings. This quote leads us into the theme of mental health struggles. Conrad struggles with crippling anxiety and depression because of the death of his brother, and he really doesn't know how to process those feelings. And being in an environment where he doesn't have the support of being able to process those kinds of feelings adds a lot more tension and a lot more angst to his already anxious and depressed state. He meets with his psychiatrist, Dr. Berger, who helps Conrad navigate those emotions. And he also becomes a third party to the family. Dr. Berger is that one character in the film that does a really great job of creating a neutral and safe space for Conrad to express himself. And I think the quote that Redford says in the interview that I just mentioned is such a great example of exploring what isn't always easy to explore. Talking about mental health, talking about loss, talking about grief, it is always looked at as such a taboo, cliche subject. And I think Ordinary People does a really great job of recognizing that feelings are flawed, feelings are part or can be a huge part of what is considered imperfect because we are we are all flawed and broken people in one way or another and the fact that this film really did focus on a family that wasn't considered a spectacle or a gimmick more so a family that was going through everyday american life and living in an everyday american society i think it does a really good job of shattering that picture perfect mentality that we have and showing that people can really go through those human experiences and still learn to heal and learn to grow from them. And I think that the film ending really does represent all of those points really well because Dr. Berger helps Conrad begin that process of healing. And he helps Conrad learn to let go of the guilt that he has associated with his brother's death. And while Conrad wasn't necessarily able to heal his relationship with Beth, he was able to heal his relationship with his dad and him and Calvin become closer and Calvin recognizes how much he needs his son and Conrad recognizes how much he needs his father and the ending is such a great pinpoint of 
Conrad and Calvin coming back together and realizing that they have each other and they were going to be there for each other even if Beth wasn't in the picture. They still had each other and they considered each other to be their safe space. The next movie that we are going to talk about is The Horse Whisperer. This movie was written by Eric Roth and Richard LaGravenise and was based on the book by Nick Evans. This movie was directed by Robert Redford. This movie is about a young girl named Grace who is played by Scarlett Johansson who is traumatized after a riding accident that badly injures her horse. Her mother Annie, played by Kristen Scott Thomas, is a high-powered New York magazine editor and realizes that Grace will only recover once the horse is healed. She takes them both to a secluded Montana ranch where legendary horse whisperer Tom Booker, who is played by Robert Redford, begins to heal the horse and also develops feelings for Annie as she begins to question her life and career. Career. The themes of this movie are city versus country, responsibility versus passion, insecurities, and grief. According to the article The Horse Whisperer, Redford Lasso's Powerful Saga, written by Todd McCarthy for Variety.com, the article states, Redford displays great intensity and concentration in his direction. Abetted by an agile shorthand in the services of character revelation that deftly skirts any obvious exposition. The intensity and concentration of Redford's direction starts off with the theme of city versus country. Grace's mom, Annie, is two different people when she is in two different spaces. Annie in the city represents someone who is in control of her space, because in that particular space, she is focused solely on her career and providing for her family. Annie in the country represents someone who feels like a stranger in an unfamiliar place. Grace, on the other hand, is the complete opposite of her mother. In the country, she has the freedom to ride and feels she owns that particular space, and in the city, she feels isolated and a sense of constraint because the city is primarily her mother's space. And a lot of those dysfunctional aspects of their relationship come to the surface when she's around her mom. And it causes a lot of estrangement and a lot of resentment. The article continues to state, from the moment he makes his long-delayed entrance, it is apparent that Redford has no intention of playing into cliched notions of a jerk-kicking, aw-shucksing, man-a-few-words cowboy. To the contrary, he is a thoughtful, thoroughly modern figure who is confident notwithstanding, has lived in the big city, experienced disappointments, notably in a failed marriage, and has had to make compromises and concessions. He also has a keen sense of character and some intuition which prove invaluable in his dealings with horses as well as people. This quote leads us into the theme of responsibility versus passion, particularly with Tom and Annie's relationship. Once Annie and Grace get to the ranch and get settled in, they begin to know Tom a little bit more and they each spend time with him one-on-one. -on -one. And once Tom and Annie begin to establish a different kind of relationship and a different kind of dynamic, they begin to open up to each other about their life and their work and it becomes a lot more intimate. And Tom makes it a point to tell Annie about his life because he feels that Annie is silently judging him. Turns out that Tom has had a lot of experience in the realm of life. He met his wife in the city, she was a musician, 
he moved back to the ranch with her and began to uncover a lot of those responsibilities of being in a relationship and what that meant to him at the time. He becomes very open about the fact that his wife didn't like the life that she was leading when she was with Tom. She didn't want to be living on a ranch. She didn't want that kind of a lifestyle. And he realized that he had to lower a lot of those expectations. And I think that in a lot of ways, Annie is also learning how to lower her expectations as well. Because she always holds herself up to a higher standard and wants to be good at everything that she does. And I think that when Grace has this accident, it does shatter that illusion of perfection that she had and it does shatter a lot of those expectations that she wanted for her daughter and I think being able to connect with Tom on that level of wanting to be passionate about something that you love but also feeling a responsibility to something else is incredibly prominent in the movie. Tom wanted the country life more than the city life and his wife didn't want the same things as he did and Tom had to be able to sacrifice those responsibilities that come with playing that husband role to follow his passions, while Annie's responsibilities to her career has left her abandoning her passions, and she feels as if she's lost a piece of herself. But Tom is that character that kind of reignites that passion in her, and opens up a new side to her that she's longed to reconnect with. The theme of insecurities touches more upon Annie and Grace's relationship. Grace becomes incredibly insecure after the accident and doesn't feel that anyone could love her the same way because she had to get her leg amputated. Meanwhile, Annie's insecurities as a parent causes her to lash out at Grace and they both end up butting heads because they are both grappling with loneliness and feeling like lost souls because of their hardships. And by the end of the film, Annie makes it a point to reach out to Grace and let her know that in some capacity she does understand what Grace is going through. Even if it doesn't seem like that all the time, she can empathize with Grace's feelings of loneliness and insecurity because Annie in a lot of ways feels the same way. Grace's loneliness also causes her to suppress her grief. Her friend passed away in the accident, and ever since then, Grace has carried a lot of guilt and suppressed a lot of those emotions similar to Conrad and ordinary people. And Tom is able to help her realize how healthy it is to let go of that pain without completely falling apart. And he is also a big representation of the neutral party for both Annie and Grace. He teaches both of them how to cope with their hardships in a patient and compassionate way, which leads us to the ending of the film where Annie and Grace are able to leave the ranch after Grace's horse has been rehabilitated and they're able to go back to the city with a newfound appreciation for each other. And they realize that they can heal and be better people for each other. There are many similarities between both Ordinary People and The Horse Whisperer. For one, we have the neutral party, specifically between Dr. Berger with Conrad and Ordinary People and Tom Booker for Annie and Grace in The Horse Whisperer. Both of these characters, even though they are in different stories, have become a really great representation of what it means to have another person 
witness somebody else's hardships or witness somebody else's pain and be able to help them navigate that. Sometimes the people that we know in our lives don't really do a good job of holding that emotional space for us. So having another person come in that doesn't know you personally, that is able to hold that particular space, definitely helps the self-expression process of navigating those feelings come into fruition. Another really important aspect that is similar in both films is the idea of coming to terms with guilt that comes with navigating loss. Conrad and Grace both experience this overwhelming amount of guilt that comes with both of the people that they have lost in their lives. And the way that they are able to learn how to heal from that and the way that they are able to learn how to accept that all goes back to the idea of movies being able to show the human experience and how much of that human experience relies on who we surround ourselves with throughout our lives. The last similarity is that there are certain characters that represent precision and neatness in regards to a certain level of control. And you see that specifically with Beth in Ordinary People and with Annie in The Horse Whisperer. Both of these women are incredibly flawed for different reasons, but they are able to use their level of control to dictate how a certain situation may go. And I think what's interesting about both films is that it shows the opposition of that. In Ordinary People, we find that Beth's control has suffocated her so much that she has no choice but to leave the family. She can't be in that space anymore because it reminds her too much of the son that she lost. Whereas Annie learns how to let go of that control in a healthier way to be more present for her daughter. Moving on to some fun facts. For ordinary people, the final scene in the dining room between Calvin and Beth was originally shot with both Donald Sutherland and Mary Tyler Moore on location. However, during editing, Sutherland thought that he had Calvin crying too much, ruining the scene. So he and director Robert Redford reshot his scenes on a partial set recreated to look like the dining room. Since Moore, who was doing theater work in New York, was unable to return for the reshoot, Redford read her lines off-camera for Sutherland to respond to. In an Entertainment Weekly article, Timothy Hutton said Robert Redford deliberately told cast and crew to play into his inexperience and resist helping him during filming, so that he would feel as isolated and unsupported as his character. Director Robert Redford and screenwriter Alvin Sargent were extraordinarily faithful to Judith Guest's novel, particularly in their handling of the character Beth. Guest was deliberately vague as to Beth's approach and management of grief, and this was achieved by shuttling the book's chapters back and forth between the viewpoints of Calvin and Conrad. No chapters are seen through Beth's eyes. The character exists only as she is seen by others, which emphasizes her increasingly ambiguous emotions and motives. In this way, Guest was able to drive home the point of her book, that no two people grieve in the same way, and that families divide because they cannot recognize each other's grieving mechanisms. Timothy Hutton won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for his role as Conrad at the age of 20, making him the youngest actor to win an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. Some fun facts for The Horse Whisperer. The movie is based on horse whisperer Buck Brenneman. In 2011, his documentary Buck was released, which was about his own past and journey with working with horses. Robert Redford and Scarlett Johansson appeared in Captain America the Winter Soldier and Avengers Endgame.
Robert Redford acquired the screen rights to the book before the novel was published. Moving on to some movie recommendations of the week. First up, we have Robert Mitchum. The Criterion Channel recently put up their Robert Mitchum collection, so I will be going on a marathon very shortly. But first, I started off with The Red Pony, Rachel and the Stranger, and The Friends of Eddie Coyle. The Red Pony is a really charming story about a young boy who adopts a pony and has to care for it, and Robert plays the cowboy that works on the ranch, and he becomes kind of like a father figure to the little boy's character. And it's really great being able to see Mitchum use a lot of his charm to carry the story. And I think the same goes for Rachel and the Stranger. This movie features William Holden and Louisa Young, and this film is mainly between the two of them, and Robert plays more of a supporting character, but he still is able to bring a lot of that charm and a lot of that wit. And it's great being able to see him add a lot of that to the story. And then we have The Friends of Eddie Coyle. This is a heist film that was released in the 70s, and it's... A lot of fun. I think the character dynamics are incredibly well-rounded and there's a lot of intensity and a lot of angst to the story and Robert's character is the man behind the scenes that kind of runs the whole operation and it's really cool to see him play a more ambiguous kind of a character. Next up, I saw Pablo Lorraine's and Kristen Stewart's Spencer, the new movie about Princess Diana. It was incredibly interesting and the film surprised me a lot. I was originally going in thinking that it was going to be an overall film about her life and her work and it turned out that this film only focuses on one specific point in her life and I loved that it was a point in her life that we don't always see. So much of the paparazzi played a huge role in the versions of Diana that the audience got to see and it was nice being able to see a film that centered more on what went on behind the scenes and what the audience didn't see every day and I think that Kristen Stewart did a really great job in this role. I think that this is the role that people are somewhat going to change their minds about her because she's so used to being in the frame of not really having a lot of depth and I think that this role gives her more of a chance to show her range as an actress. Last but not least, I watched Matthew Vaughn's Layer Cake. This movie stars Daniel Craig, and it's one of Matthew Vaughn's older films. He also did the Kingsman movies with Taron Egerton and Colin Firth. And Layer Cake is about a drug dealer who deals a lot of drugs and gets involved with a lot of gangs. And it was really fun being able to see Daniel Craig play another intense role that wasn't exactly linked to James Bond. And it's always really fun watching a Matthew Vaughn movie in general because he's known for making films with a lot of gritty violence and a lot of gritty wit and intelligence to them as well. So that watch was a lot of fun. As our time together comes to an end, I just want to thank everyone for tuning in to M's Drive-In. I'm your host Emily, bringing you into the exciting world of cinema with some behind-the-scenes facts and everything you need to know about some of the best artists in the business. Keep an eye out for next week's episode as we explore gender roles with Ridley Scott and Catherine Bigelow.